So I'm going to speak about something that has been on my heart. It's, it's been, been where I've, I've lived for the last three years or so. And um, I'm going to speak about this very short phrase, he has spoken through the prophets. And who has spoken through the prophets? The Holy Spirit. So let's say, the Spirit has spoken through the prophets. Uh, say that with me. The Spirit has spoken through the prophets. This is a really important phrase in the Nicene Creed because it establishes the continuity of our Christian faith with the God of the Old Testament. Um, the God we believe in is not a philosophical construct. God is not an ideal being. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has a name, a personal name. And this God in the person of the Holy Spirit has spoken through the prophets. He did great wonders and they wrote the scriptures. <coughs> the Old Testament is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Church Fathers affirmed this by the statement in the Creed. The Holy Spirit has been speaking from the beginning. And we Christians are part of the same story that the Jewish prophets participated in. Right? This is, this is the one phrase that connects us with that story. Now, Paul expresses this continuity beautifully in Galatians 3. In fact, he uses words which, which jar my conception of what the gospel is. Um, so, Diane, do you want to read that out loud? The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. This is a crazy scripture. It says God preached the gospel to Abraham. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. God preached the gospel to Abraham. God preached the gospel to Abraham. I love this. Um, now, the quote that, that Thomas used earlier, I think it's very relevant. There's a progression, a, a progression of, of revelation. God did not tell Abraham about his son. Exactly, right? He said, in your seed, every nation on earth will be blessed. What Abraham did is he believed that the voice of God was true. He believed that he was not deceived, right? He believed that what he was hearing was true. He believed that it was God who was saying it, and he believed that God was, was truthful. That was what he believed. And God credited it to him as righteousness. And God counts it as the gospel. Right? It is good news in seminal form because the blessing that would bless all the nations is Jesus. So Abraham yoked himself to this, to this announcement of the good news. And every prophet that came after him saw, every Jewish prophet that came after him saw themselves as stepping into that original promise. Every Jewish prophet is prophesying maybe something new, something fuller, seeing something different, but they're stepping into that blessing of Abraham. It's continuous with the original promise. Now Paul tells us that the prophets and the apostles are the foundation of the church. All right. 
Um, Marty, can you read that? This is Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being lifted, now what is that word? Fitted. Fitted together is growing into a holy into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Jesus is the cornerstone which holds the prophets and the apostles together. He is the fulfillment of the prophets. He is the rock and the hope of the apostles. Now, when Paul is writing here, and particularly, I believe he is speaking about the historic prophets, the Old Testament prophets. I do believe that prophecy operates in the church today. I do believe that there are even people who operate as prophets in the church today. But in this case, I believe that Paul is talking about the historic prophets. And why do I believe that? Well, he's speaking to Gentiles who are being swept up into the story. So you no longer are strangers and aliens. He's talking to the Gentiles who believed in Jesus. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints who are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, he's saying you share with the prophets. You are now part of the family and the house of the prophets. Amy? Yes. Uh, The psalmist, I think two places calls Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob God's prophets. Yes, yes, they are called prophets. And we're going to get to another person over here that we don't normally think of as a prophet, who is a prophet. We're going to talk about what is a prophet. But I want to talk about this idea of of the temple a little bit. The idea of the people of God being built into a holy temple is echoed in John's revelation. Now this temple is described as the New Jerusalem. And here I'm going to have a little side, just something I learned from Mark Kinzer. Have you noticed in the, when we read about the, the, the New Jerusalem that it's a cube? It's like 10,000 something stadia long and 10,000 high and 10,000 wide. It's a really weird shape for a city, right? Mm-hmm. I've always thought this just looked, I mean, and it's huge. I mean, it's huge. It's like uh, the, the, the dimensions are like from, from Texas to California wide and then I begin tall. And then it's just, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's enormous. <clears throat> the idea in Revelation is that all of creation belongs to the Lord. He is the King and Lord of all of creation, and yet there is this holy city, this central place, which is also described as a bride, and it's in a cube. And the in the tabernacle and in the temple, um, the outer courts and the buildings were all rectangular, but the holy of holies is a cube. And it's like this, this new Jerusalem is the center. It is the holy of holies of the new creation. And this holy of holies, which is a temple, is also described as a bride. So we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are also this temple. So we have a ministerial role as a temple, as a place where we are joined together and we are one being. But it's also an intensely personal, beautiful thing. This, this temple is also a bride. It's hard for me to get those two things in my head, but, it's, but this, this language is consistent. It is consistent in Paul, and it's what John sees. All right. 
So we have the Jude Jerusalem up there. All right. <coughs> Sandy, do you want us to read that? Someone with good eyes. <laughs> Can you read it? <laughs> Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So in this beautiful city, which is the bride, we get this, this idea again. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There are 12, um, 12 gates to the city, and each one of those gates is named for one of the tribes of Israel. There are 12 foundations in the city, and each one is named for the apostles. Now, I, I believe that this is showing us an interesting dimension. In Christ, we have a purpose that is both ministerial and intimately personal, like a temple and a bride. And I believe the prophets are pictures of this twofold intimacy, this twofold relationship with God. They are witnesses to Christ and they are friends of God. We're going to come back to that in a second. So the relationship between apostles and prophets, Peter takes it up in, the, in his second epistle. But most importantly, Jesus himself makes the connection between the apostles and the prophets. In Luke 11, he's speaking to a group of scribes and lawyers, and he says this, Therefore also the wisdom of God said. This is a very unusual phrase for Jesus to use. I don't know that it's ever used anywhere else in the Gospels. But Jesus refers to the wisdom of God. And as we've said, this is often, um, often language for the Holy Spirit. I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So you'll notice in there, as John said, we don't often think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as prophets. We don't often think of Abel as a prophet, do we? But there he is, from Abel to Zechariah. So now the question is, what makes a prophet? I'm going to offer a definition of an Old Testament prophet, which I'm not going to develop or defend too vigorously today. I'm just going to set it out there for you to ponder. I believe the Old Testament prophets, in their ministerial role, were men who anticipated and participated proleptically in the ministry of Jesus. You could say prophetically, but I've learned the word proleptically from Mark Kinzer, and I, I have to say I didn't know it, so um, if anybody else needs a little help, I'm going to give you a definition, okay? Can you say the definition? 
Sorry. Uh oh, you're coding. That's bad. <laughs> okay. Old Testament prophets were men who, in their ministerial role, anticipated and participated proleptically in the ministry of Jesus. Okay. Definition of prolepsis is anticipation, such as the representation or assumption of a future act or development as if it presently as if presently existing or accomplished. So when Paul says God preached the gospel to Abraham, it is a proleptic kind of gospel. God knows the future. God knows how this promise is going to unfold. Um, and Abraham believing in the promise in his mind is the same as believing in the gospel. Now I want you to hang with me for a little bit on this idea. <clears throat> Revelation tells us that the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. If this is true, then the story of our salvation begins well before we humans have any conception of our need for salvation. Right? And well before we knew that the Father desired a bride for his Son, well before we could know the terrible price he was willing to pay for our union with him. <coughs> The whole story of salvation was held within the heart of the Trinity. And the whole story of salvation was given in seminal form to Abraham. And all the prophets who followed Abraham were invited through the Holy Spirit to anticipate various aspects of Jesus' ministry. Okay. So Abraham and Isaac acted out the father's gift of his son and the sacrifice of Jesus. And it was a divinely orchestrated prophetic drama. Moses was a great teacher and wonder worker like Jesus would be. Elijah raised a man from the dead and he called down fire from heaven. In that showdown with the prophets of Baal, I believe Elijah anticipates the second coming of Jesus when he's going to come to execute judgment. I believe this is what Elijah was doing. Elijah was doing something important in the history of Israel, yes. Something critically important in the history of Israel and prophetically important for who Jesus would be. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, and I believe this is true. All of our actions have meaning, personal meaning. Our response to God has meaning for us here and now, and I think it also will bear witness mm -hmm. to what is coming. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so this idea of a proleptic witness is consistent with what scripture teaches us about prophecy so Revelation 19.10 this is a scripture I learned from Caroline years ago the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy <laughs> well <laughs> so if I would guess the prophets have the spirit of prophecy right if prophets have the spirit of prophecy, they must be testifying to Jesus, even if they don't know that's what they're doing. Is that too weird? We are. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. 
So that's one definition. That's, that's a prophet, as I understand it, that's the Old Testament prophet in their ministerial role. But I think there's something more fundamentally that marks a prophet of God. And that is the personal, intimate aspect of the prophet's identity. And Diane touched on this in her word. A prophet fundamentally is one who receives revelation. A prophet is one God entrusts his thoughts to. A prophet is one that God becomes vulnerable to. A prophet is one who hears the voice of God. What does this tell us about the tenderness and the humility of God? God desires to have friends among men and women. And that is astounding. Prophet is someone that God talks to. First <coughs> Corinthians, Paul asks this question. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? And then he goes on and answers. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. So, if the Old Testament prophets knew the thoughts of God, they knew them through the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit enabled Abraham to hear and to understand and to have dialogue with God. And this is what made Abraham a prophet. Can, um, Sandy, could you make sure that door is closed? Or you may ask me to just do them like one at a time or put them upstairs or something. <laughs> Move the children. <laughs> <coughs> they're disrupting my groove. <laughs> it's good they're so much more easily mobilized than we are. Adult Yeah, slowly. Okay. So Abraham was able to hear God because the Holy Spirit enabled him to hear God. And because Abraham believed that it was the Spirit of God speaking. Abraham opened himself up to the Spirit of God. Abraham did not make predictions about the future. I don't believe, I can't recall any prediction about the future that Abraham made. Nonetheless, when God speaks to Abimelech in a dream about Sarah, he tells the king to have Abraham pray for him. Abraham lied to him about his wife. He said, now you need to go and have him pray for you because he is a great prophet. He was a great prophet because he was a friend of God. Now, if you ask any Jew who is the greatest prophet, they will all give you the same answer. Who is the greatest prophet? Moses. Moses is the greatest prophet that ever lived, if you ask any Jew. <coughs> was it because he predicted the future? Moses did sing a few songs at the end of his life that were prophetic, but that is not why he was the greatest prophet. Was it because he worked great wonders? Partly, yes. Partly because he worked great wonders. But Elijah also worked wonders. He raised a man from the dead. Elijah is not even a second, close second to Moses. Moses was the greatest of the prophets because he saw God. He spoke with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. 
That was astounding. God entrusted his thoughts to Moses. He entrusted his emotions to Moses. God let Moses know when he was angry at the people so Moses could intercede. God let Moses know when he was angry at him. God entrusted Moses with his thoughts and with his emotions and with his plans. He, I've talked about this before, so after, part, after the plagues of Egypt, after parting the Red Sea, after eating with God on a mountain, after receiving the commandments, Moses begs God, let me see your glory. Moses says, you're holding back. <laughs> Isn't that a sound? Oh, God loves that kind of desire. He loves that kind of desire. I want to see your glory. And yeah, Moses, God had more to give. Okay, I'll show you my glory. I'll tell you my name. The name of God reveals his character, his nature, the truth and essence of his being. And when God spoke his name to Moses, it was the greatest revelation of himself to any person until the coming of Jesus. So, Philip, would you, would you read Exodus 34? This is the name of God. Sort of. <laughs> it's, like, it's the toned-down version. <laughs> the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now Jesus has come to reveal the Father to us in a way that Moses that Moses could have only dreamed about. And Jesus tells the generation he's with, you know, the prophets long to see this day that you see. So Jesus came and he revealed the Father's nature. He demonstrated, he put on display the Father's character. And at the Last Supper discourse, Jesus is praying to his Father and he says, I have manifested your name. I've come and I've showed them. I've revealed your character. And he also tells the disciples, he said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. And it's better that I go to the Father, because then I will send you the Spirit. And why is it better to have the Spirit than Jesus on earth? Well, go back to 1 Corinthians. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? 
but we have the mind of Christ. It is better that Jesus goes so that his spirit can live within us, so that we can have his mind, we can think like him, so we can act like him, so we can relate to the Father, we can know the Father. (coughs) What is better than having Jesus in our midst is having the spirit of Christ inside of us. This is better. It is. It's very good. It is unspeakably good. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift that enables us to know the thoughts of God, just like the prophets did. There is... It's interesting that Paul uses a plural uh, saying, but we have the mind of Christ. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about himself and the whole community of the Corinthians that has the mind of Christ. Everyone who has the Spirit mm-hmm. is able to know the mind of Christ. Everyone who has the Spirit is able to know the mind of Christ. It, gets, it goes back to what Thomas said. We don't really believe that, do we? We don't really believe that we can know the mind of Christ. But if we have the Holy Spirit, we can know the mind of Christ. Now, Paul warns us in the same passage that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. We will find it very tempting to doubt the voice of the Holy Spirit or to resist the Spirit's leading in our life. Paul is also very clear that the Spirit runs counter to the flesh. We see this in Jesus' life. Jesus is baptized. It's this glory moment. The Father speaks from heaven. And it says, and immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. How many of you want to sign up for 40 days of fasting? <laughs> and the voice of the accuser. I mean, it's not, it's not terribly appealing. <coughs> but Jesus was led by the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And so, God has, it, it says, we, we need the Spirit to know the gift that God has freely given us. Well, what gift has he freely given us? He's given us the Spirit. But that doesn't mean that we always trust the Spirit or believe the Spirit or are willing to be led by the Spirit. Now, when the Holy Spirit does take root in our soul, when we when we learn more and more to be led by the Spirit, to trust the Spirit, to contemplate the Father through the Holy Spirit, to contemplate the Son through the Holy Spirit, to fix our minds like Jesus' mind was set on the Father. Jesus did nothing without hearing from the Father. When this becomes more and more of our attitude, think, I can hear the voice of God through the Holy Spirit. I will do nothing that the Holy Spirit doesn't direct me to do we will find that the Holy Spirit takes root in our souls. And when the Holy Spirit takes root in our souls, the Holy Spirit will produce fruit. Produce the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Does that not sound a lot like the name of God? The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of the character of the Father in our hearts. And once again, Revelation. I love Revelation because it's, um, it, and I, I personally believe that Revelation is 
not metaphor. I believe that the book of Revelation is, is real, but it's, it's, it's the, um, the physical outworking of things that are hidden in this life, and they're going to become visible, they're going to become manifest, and they're going to be wild beyond our imagination. And so this is what Jesus says to those who overcome. <coughs> the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He should never go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. If you keep going on, it says that I will write on him my new name. Jesus gets a new name. Jesus gets lots of new names. And he has like, he has like three new names in Revelation. And, and one of them, he promises to write on us. Um, you know, this is, this is what I want. And this is what I want. I want the name of God written on my forehead. I want, or wherever. I, I don't care. It's like I want it written on me. I want to be one who through the help and leading of the Holy Spirit overcomes and knows the Father, who has the Father's character in me. And Jesus greatly desires that we're filled with the Holy Spirit and come to know the Father the way he does. So that we may have his mind. So that we have the kind of relationship with the Father that he has. And this is, this is the John 17 prayer, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. This happens through the filling of the Holy Spirit. We cannot be one with one another without the filling of the Holy Spirit. You're going to talk more about that, so I'll stop there. Beautiful. Now, I want, I want to go back to where we started this morning. I think, I think that more than anything else, Okay, okay. We think of the Holy Spirit as a giver of gifts. The Holy Spirit is a giver of gifts. And in the charismatic movement, the gifts of the Spirit were, were emphasized. And so people spoke in tongues. People had um, they get gifts of prophecy. They had gifts of knowledge. Um, there were also effects of the Holy Spirit. So the people would have holy laughter or holy tears or... I've seen people running around like they were on fire or shaking. And all of this stuff was going on. It is all good. It is all from the Holy Spirit. It, it is the ministerial part. It is building us up to, to equip us, to make us this beautiful temple. But there's something that's closer to, to Jesus' heart. Because Jesus' great goal is to honor the Father. And so... The gift, I think, that's closest to Jesus' heart and the sending of the Holy Spirit is that we would know the Father. And I love this verse in Galatians. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. <coughs> now, when we originally scheduled this retreat for November, and we had to cancel it, um, and that night, that night, the Spirit gave me a gift in the form of a dream. And my impression was that he really wanted to give us all gifts. But as I prepared for this retreat, I really feel like the gift he wants to impart to us today are not the manifestations of the Spirit. Primarily, not the ones that we think of in the charismatic sense, but this deep knowledge of the Father and the deep certainty that we have the mind of Christ. 
I think he wants to invite us to practice thinking of the mind of Christ. These gifts take practice. The gift of the Holy Spirit takes practice. I know that sounds strange, but it does. Um, I love the first chapter of Jeremiah because it's about the training of a prophet. Jeremiah has a vision, and God, through the Spirit, says, Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah says, I see an almond tree. (laughs) And the Spirit says, yes, you see rightly. I'll tell you what this means. There's practice in learning to, to hear the Holy Spirit. We can practice it by hearing and by sharing with one another and, and, and helping one another discern. But fundamentally, we have to practice it by being quiet and being with the Lord. And so we have a few minutes left, and, and I'd like us to do that. I, I would like you to take a few moments and do one of two things. There may be a a particular situation that's difficult in your life now. And I would encourage you to say, Holy Spirit, would you give me the mind of Christ about the situation? Would you tell me something specific and concrete and helpful about the situation? Or some of you may just really, really need to know... (coughs) that God is your Father. You need this. You need to cry, Abba, Father. And I'd like, we've got a few minutes before lunch. I'd like to take the next eight minutes. Can we do that? Five minutes? 30 minutes. We don't have that much time. What? Mm-hmm. No, we don't. We do. No. 12.15 is lunch. Okay. 12.15 is lunch. Okay, well, can we do, can we do <laughs> 10 to 12 minutes and come back and see if, if, if we heard the Holy Spirit? Can we, can, can we do that? Okay, because I think the Holy Spirit can speak in 12 minutes. <laughs> I will encourage you, as I've been working the last three years on developing my personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, one of the things that's most helpful is being outside. So I would encourage you to, if you're up for the risk North wind, which you don't have to be, that's fine. But if you are, then I would encourage you to go outside and feel the wind and see the grass and let the Holy Spirit speak to you from creation. Okay, we will ring the bell in 12 minutes and ask, ask for the mind of Christ, very specifically, or a revelation of the Father. All right? All right.